gemeinsam haben. Da fing alles an, da ging Hans-Georg Maaßen die Straße entlang. Hello, welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander, as always joined by Wallace. Uh, James, how are you? <laughs> Wallace James is here. It's, it's James, James Wallace. Jamie and I today have a really cool episode. I'm super excited. So we decided to um, have one of our very, very dear friends on the show, which in no way diminishes her stake to be here. Uh, her name is Elle. She has experience in the field in Lutzerat, which is extremely valuable. Her quick wits and sharp mind make her also, I think, one of the most exciting up and coming uh, researchers, if that's the route she decides to take. And, you know, I don't want to put too much pressure on her, but uh, I do think that we're kind of making an early big wave with this, uh, considering where I think Ede can go uh, in, in her life. So I'm very, very excited to have this episode out and about. So please welcome Ele, who's a master's student at UIO, University of Oslo, in the development, environment, and cultural change. Welcome to the show. Welcome, welcome. Hey, Skander. Hey, Jamie. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited uh, for our conversation today. And yeah, just very grateful that you invited me to your cool podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it cool, but all right, I'll take the compliments. <laughs> I think it's so cool, and my friends think it's so cool as well. Well, That's That's all right, <laughs> Jamie, stop blushing. God, <laughs> <so> embarrassing. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's totally uh, our pleasure to to have you on. I have to say that you know we did our master's thesis field work around the same time. Uh, we both had the same supervisor. Uh, hello, if you're listening, Sandra. <laughs> uh, we were both slightly potentially difficult people to have as supervisees, or at least myself. I don't know if I would include you in that, uh, that uh, basket. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but uh, so we, we do share a, a kind of, we have we have a shared experience in a way and and it's I find it really interesting because even though we have this shared experience, our actual field works were very different. I mean, yeah. I I was in a more like slow, quiet conflict that you know took its time, didn't have anything flashy to it. People had emotions for sure. There were it was emotional in a lot of ways, but um, you know, wind turbine development is very slow. So especially in Europe. There's not much big bang around it. Whereas for you, Lucerat, I mean, it went from being relatively quiet, as I understand, to boom, front page BBC, like all over the the, the news uh, cycle for at least a week, you know, and then it moved on as it usually does. Um, so I guess my, my first question would be, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your general experience in in doing this this thesis and how it felt um being in, in Lusrat and and maybe I guess maybe we can start with just what happened there uh for for listeners who aren't familiar with the context. Mm. Um yeah so Lutzerat uh, was a a occupied occupied village at the edge of a coal mine uh, in Germany. Um where people have, yeah, kind of, and that connects a little bit maybe to the comparison you made before to our two field sites. Um, 
with people connected to actually 40 and more years of local resistance against this coal mine. So there has been a very long, mm. maybe more or less quiet period before that as well, or maybe rather, yeah, made quiet and kind of silenced uh, protest as well. Um, but then, of course, when people suddenly stop to cross um what's legal what's not and start to re-inhabit a village yeah. that has been previously emptied to make space for to yeah to allow this mine to expand um then of course it gets much more attention so that's what happened in the Tsardis in 2020 um yeah people from the climate justice movement in germany but also local um, people from the surrounding villages or yeah, previous inhabitants of Lützard started to um, respond to some destruction that was going on at the time. Although there was still people living in Lützerath, the mining company RWE had already started to yeah, destroy roads, destroy infrastructures, um, actually tear down houses right on the other side of the road where there was still people living, mm. which is very common um, for them to do. And just, you know, forcing people out of their homes, actually. And yeah, so protesters began to respond to this um, destruction that was very openly also resisted against already. So there was, it was, yeah, for years, I mean, since the the mine has been planned, people, there has been local resistance. Um, and then people started to yeah, re-inhabit this village, started to live in tree houses, in tents, in in buildings that were empty, um, in caravans and in self-built cabins. And yeah, held this um, space for over two years. And then in, in February, oh no, in uh, January this year, uh, followed by the decision of the German government or yeah they call it negotiations between the government and this mining company a land deal as I like to call it um, which decided that the coal underneath Lützerath was still was necessary was needed um, their core argument was the energy crisis of course but also that yeah um, <laughs> yeah that we will that the company is uh, investing a lot in renewable energies and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of things that they used to justify this decision, which they also called a great day for the climate because the way they presented it, um, it was kind of, yeah, saying that it was a curly, uh, that we will go towards an earlier coal exit, which is not true. Um, but that's maybe another point. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, in January this year, uh, Lützerat was evicted by the police. Um, there was thousands of police um, recruited from all over Germany. Um, yeah, to to clear this uh, occupation. And um, by now, not even, yeah, now it's a bit more than three months, but already three months after the eviction, they had already taken away the first layer of soil. So there is nothing left of Lützerat and they were very wow. um, yeah, busy to 
remove everything that's there <laughs> as fast yeah. as possible. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I that's guess it. the the police maybe uh, ran out of people to arrest uh, outside of Lutzerat, so they had to all go do that because that's so they didn't have anything else better to do. Um, <laughs> so Lutzi, as you call it. Um, yeah. which I think to save us the embarrassment of our terrible, terrible German pronunciation. Uh, although, wait, Jamie, you did study German for a little bit, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Uh, but yeah. you know, just for just for convenience, I'll probably just shorten it to Lutzi as well. Yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll call it Lutzi. Uh, so would you say that Lutzi, I mean, physically as a, as a place of residence doesn't exist anymore? Is that what you mean by the that it's completely evicted and the first layer of soil has been taken off? Yeah, physically, it's a geographical it's place. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Already gone. It is where, in, yeah, according to the mining company in 2080, but that's very unlikely. Um, there will be a huge lake, um, a residual lake, to okay. fill the hole of the mine and. Let's see, is already in that lake. But as I said, it's very unlikely that this will happen because the water where they, um, what they are planning to take uh, mm -hmm. from the Rhine River is also already, yeah, running out of water. So yeah. it's very ambitious plans that they're having to justify. And yeah. Is it right to say that, like, this? resistance started as like a kind of counter opposing the the locals being displaced and then it may be developed into sort of having other aspects um of other reasons for the resistance including like environmental reasons would you say yeah yeah definitely um maybe before i answer that to that i i just wanted to add also to your question before skander that um yeah, the physical place is gone, but there's so much left from Lützerath, and that is really clearly visible in, you know, all the other, for example, there's been a forest occupation one and a half week, uh, weeks ago in Berlin, and it's it's just all over, and people are very, people learned so much uh, in their time in Lützerath, um, and of course made connections, and I think there you can really see that, um, the physical place is gone, but the Zerat is not gone, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, yeah, um, Jamie, mm, in the beginning, the, the local resistance was a lot about, yeah, just uh, resisting the loss of home and people being forced out of their homes, their neighborhoods, and, yeah, um, you know, all, all that comes along with that, because of course there's also social tension and social um, conflict if some people are more willing to move out than others. And um, yeah, so the whole area is just really, it's very polarized between people who kind of, yeah, buy into all this, I would call it propaganda of RWE, of the mining company, that is painting itself as, yeah, green <laughs> and as um, their resettlement 
um, procedures as, you know, uh, in inclusive or socially mm. um, compatible, kind of. There's, of course, people who believe that. And then there's people who say, no, <laughs> I'm not going to sell my home. Maybe my, you know, my, the, the farm that has been in our family's um, ownership for generations. Um, but it also this this very like mm, personal motivations, maybe I think also already in the eighties, it kind of, it developed a little bit more to also consider the local environmental an impacts, um, which is for example, billions of liters of water that have to be, be pumped away um, to make this mine function. Because if that wasn't there, it would just fill up with groundwater and uh, machines couldn't work. Um, which now actually the groundwater is so depleted that it goes into the Netherlands and that even if they wow. manage to fill up this land that is uh, whole with water until 2080, I read that there's like maybe hundreds of years afterwards, they still need to add more water because the groundwater is so depleted that it will just run off. Yeah. Um. I mean, okay, that's that beside the obvious destruction from just land being eaten up. Mm -hmm. No, but um, it's an important or important point to make, especially in terms of international relations. I wonder how. I mean, I'm sure there'll be some sort of mechanism between the national governments to kind of, I would say, financialize that into some sort of debt. But in terms of environment and and social kind of destruction. Um, and destruction of life I mean that's that's huge yeah and then for example you had the neighboring coal mine so Litzerat was at the Garzweiler coal mine uh, which is right next to the Hambach coal mine which is even bigger um, mm -hmm. Garzweiler is about um, <laughs> 35 square kilometers large only okay, the yeah. whole but the entire mining area, so including all the area that's already been um, re, uh, um, rehabilitated, kind of. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually almost 80 square kilometers, and that's just one of those areas. And then you have the Hambach, which is, um, I don't know exactly how, I think it's around 50 square kilometers, mm -hmm. just the whole. And in 2018, there was already a really big struggle against this mine with the Hambach forest occupation. Um, yeah, where people were protesting against a thousand year, thousand year old forest being cut down for, for light and coal. Um, yeah, I remember we spoke to, um, Carola Rakete. Uh, oh, yeah. about this on the on the show um like god two and a half years ago now um mm -hmm. and yeah i remember her talking about the den and rotor forest especially and and uh, i mean the, you can see the humback coal mine from space apparently <laughs> because yeah. it's so big yeah and then yeah of course with people from the climate justice movement coming in also um, but I also like from the local protests as well, it's kind of this, this awareness, awareness of the global consequences of this whole also, of course, growing in the past, um, yeah, I don't know, 
10, 20 years. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not so sure about the numbers here, but you can definitely see how it is getting more, <clears throat> yeah, more just connecting the local struggles also to to the light or to the to struggles in other countries um, in the global south, for example. And yeah, I think that's where Lutzi just is this place of solidarity and it's really um yeah it's really making graspable what capitalism actually does here like right in front of our feet mm -hmm. and that it is also connected to what it does because yeah at the same time as i was in litzi there was the floods in pakistan for example and it is yeah. it is just so connected and then yeah I really like to to tell a story where mm, on my very first night in our treehouse, mm -hmm. um, we yeah, so our treehouse was like right facing the mine, basically it was right at the edge, and um, I was there with a bunch of people of whom I only knew one really, and I. You know, <laughs> the rest I had just met throughout the last two days or so. And we were watching Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. I don't know. Oh, if you... love yeah. that. Yeah. So in that movie, right, you have people fighting over, like militarily fighting over the really last inhabitable, inhabitable spaces of the earth. Mm -hmm. And we watched this movie and then I look outside of the window of our tree house and in between all the leaves you just see how one of the biggest machines on earth is like digging its shovels that just feel like greedy teeth into the soil and yeah it's just it felt super surreal because we're watching this movie it just yeah and then you're looking outside and it's reality like it is what's happening and it's just like okay what like what are we doing here and how can this be profitable and what do we even use all this energy for to produce electric cars <laughs> what yeah actually yeah. That, that is a good question about uh, about you know where is this energy going because often obviously it's something that's not only technically difficult to to tell because energy often just goes into you know this uh, sort of vacuum called the grid that then gets mm -hmm. sent a bit everywhere but is there an, uh, a kind of clearer idea from the company and, and the government as to where this energy is supposed to go to or like where what is this project supposed to uh feed into if not just this more general idea of the grid hmm. um i think maybe important there is that lightenite is itself just 40 percent uh, efficient if you have a newer um power plant with the older power plants it's just 30 percent efficient which is <laughs> already so bad 
she consider what's being destroyed for that. Um, and then that's not taken into account, like all the energy needed to, you know, pump away the water for all the advertising and like corporate social responsibility stuff that they're making to legitimize what they're doing or thinking about, you know, the police, uh, um, uh, the cost for the police to come there and do, yeah. to do this whole eviction, for example. Um, Thousands of policemen, their equipment, yeah. their trucks, everything. Yeah. Um, And I, I read a, a statistics today that it's like, it's like around, I don't know, um, I think it was 7% or something that actually end up like in our electricity grid for, for households, for example. Oh. Um, but then obviously most energy goes into industry. And I think that oh. is where, where we, yeah, need to change like, mm -hmm. Yeah, what are we producing and is that worth destroying you know home yeah when the um bribes slash compensate compensation slash reimbursement for people to move out sort of didn't work for everyone and then it escalated to sort of forceful eviction um what what would you i mean is was that like a because i i'm not i'm not familiar with german human rights law but was there was that like a clear like violation of german human rights and also like was there any sort of like either public or like in government debate on the sort of legality uh, in terms of rights of forceful eviction um at the point of eviction, there was no official inhabitant left in Lützerath. Um, so it okay, was right. entirely, one would say, squatted. Um, but one could also say that the company is squatting the land <laughs> by privatizing <laughs> yeah. it. <laughs> um, yeah, maybe what you were pointing to, Jamie, um, is that the, the German mining law, it's, it's really old. Um, Around 1930, I'm not exactly sure about the year, but under the um, National Socialists, it was reworked so that it was um, legal to put the mining rights over people's uh, private property rights. Right. And that yeah. hasn't been changed. It has been reworked in the 80s, but that mm -hmm. part hasn't been changed. So what really? it has been used as a military strategy in the Second World War is still working today. And that's just insane to still, yeah, put the energy security of Germany, <laughs> you know, over people's, um, yeah, over people's homes, but overall, of course, over, yeah, uh, climate justice. Yeah, um, life itself. Life, yeah. And I, I find it so so terrifying in a way that uh, they kind of force us to like use their jargon in a way and to talk like just before earlier a few minutes ago when you had trouble kind of with the word squatting right and like mm -hmm. what's legal and, and stuff it's kind of find it very 
interesting but also very morbid how as we struggle against these sort of things that are happening these changes these processes we're forced to partake in their language in talking about ourselves as squatters uh talking about our, our actions as illegal and in a way that kind of like morphs the very way we think about it i think by being forced to enter their arena of language uh i i wonder if if that had an impact on you when you were in lutzi did you ever kind of stop and kind of catch yourself thinking my god am i doing something like illegal and aka wrong <laughs> here or do you think that you kind of were steadfast in your in, in knowing that you were on the right side of history that you were doing something protecting life in germany and elsewhere mm -hmm. I have two thoughts on that, but maybe first to your question is that I think from the first moment I put my foot into Lutzi and I saw this hole, I was just like, there's nothing and no one that can tell me that it's not right what people are doing here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And for me personally, it was very grounding because I always, I don't know, I feel I was a little bit confused always in, with studying, you know, I was always a bit like, okay, I learn all this, but what am I going to do with it? And what does this, like, what is the point of learning this if I can't really change anything with, um, with it? And I always sought this connection to underground struggles and, yeah, tried how to find out what I can do with my position as an, yeah, as someone who's writing and reading a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, it just, I don't know, it just felt like pulling me down and, be, and saying, first of all, you don't have to solve everything at once <laughs> or try yeah. to do that. And second, here's one very concrete uh, like place and very concrete struggle people who are doing they're struggling every day they live there and their life is the struggle against um capitalism it is an anti-capitalist fight um yeah and just you know learn from them uh, with them and yeah so no there was no doubt actually it was just very reassuring and really Something I think that I've been looking for for a long time. And I had, um, yeah, some breadcrumbs on the way. But then I think there was two people uh, in my studies who really um, supported me in this. And um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> now I'm drifting away a little bit. But to your other... To your other point before with uh, the language that we kind of adopt, I think for ourselves, it can maybe even have something, you know, yeah, also reassuring or strengthening to say I'm squatting because then I'm actively going against this system that I think mm -hmm. uh, is, yeah, <laughs> destructive and, um, 
but it can of course be difficult to communicate that to people who might not be on that um yeah not that deep into the um the matter when you say yeah. you're squatting then of course it's just like yeah oh, but it's not legal so you're taking away some of this stuff and yeah yeah it's tough sometimes in academia isn't it like when you get to know a topic or struggle so much but you feel like you're kind of on the outside of it and you're not contributing directly to it so it's good like yeah it's good it's good when you do find ways to actually like get involved physically but it's sometimes hard to do that in a direct way through your like research i feel sometimes yeah Definitely. Mm. I think that's where I'm yeah, very grateful for the approach that I was encouraged to take in this, uh, which was just very personal and very um, like diving into it fully and kind of not trying even to separate myself from it, because why would I? Like, I'm part of it. And mm -hmm. um, I think it's it's sometimes a little bit pretentious to try and keep oneself at distance because um yeah we're just learning so much from each other and i feel like distance always keeps us at this position where we try to make these objective claims and hear all sides and la di da di da and then it actually prohibits us from committing and saying, okay, this is the knowledge, the kind of knowledge that I want to generate, and this is for whom I want to generate it. And this is like, basically decide on which I am, mm. which I think, yeah, comes with some pain also, because you become part of it. And it is sometimes scary and um, painful to lose something, mm -hmm. or to feel like you lose it. But yeah. Should we maybe go over a little bit your uh, of the kind of timeline of Lutzrat and and your your experience there? So how how exactly did you kind of find Lutzrat? Because I I remember that you were there before the kind of media storm that happened uh, with you know Greta Thunberg going and <laughs> etc. and buses of of. Uh, activists going to lend their support how what made you choose Lutzi and and also I guess after after how many like how many months did you stay there or how long did you stay in, and and how did it evolve as you were there I stumbled a little bit into Lutzi I would say <laughs> um because I was at a different struggle before, um, an anti-gentrification struggle in Aachen. There's a occupied or inhabited uh, monastery that has been decaying for over 10 years and people started to yeah, put life back in. Um, <clears throat> and there we had... So actually I decided to not go to Litzi. My supervisor has, um, has told me to, or he was... Yeah, encouraging me to go, but I thought, oh no, I can't do two sides. It's going to be too much and it is too much, but it's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I actually put away the thought of going there, but then we, we, um, got visitors from Litzi in the monastery 
and there was especially one person who just brought a lot of yeah it was just very light hearted joyful person who invited me to to visit them uh, in their um, treehouse and then I thought okay I'm just gonna give it a try and see how it is and then I kind of yeah <laughs> I went there once and then I kept going back and in the end was there for about four and a half months um some breaks in between but I mean I've just been very very incredibly welcomed there and met amazing people um what was the situation like living living wise um it's a little bit difficult to explain because it changed all the time so we were in a treehouse with like sometimes we were two sometimes we were five or six people you know um and then everyday life was a bit like yeah also very different every day there was this uh, blackboard where there was um it was completely full on every day there was different skill shares events um plenaries workshops for example uh, about critical masculinity um so yeah it's a lot of very political um content mm. and i think overall to say that it's not as a place of yeah political learning is very very accurate and very important um and yeah of course there was a lot of you know working together on just keeping this place alive so reproductive activities cooking and um yeah taking night shifts and things like that uh but also organizing demonstrations uh, we had a festival um where we yeah kind of prepared for the eviction mobilized yeah and did were you ever under assault was the the camp itself kind of under assault by police at any uh, point? they didn't really put their foot in there until the eviction except for one time uh, which was in early december where they suddenly um yeah stood in front of the the wooden gate that was kind of the entrance to litzi and yeah there was a whole lot of uh they said they wouldn't come inside and they only had hundreds of police there in case someone would go you know violent or yeah whatever um but then they did come inside anyways and just marched around the whole village and if, mm -hmm. and then like what they did was they just took notes on the tree houses and the heights and oh, all these things yeah. and but they pushed it so much that like they had i think it was 200 police or something wow um, what was the population of Lutzi like at that time, it wasn't so many people because people were taking a break before the actual eviction. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but yeah, so that was the only time that when I was there, at least that they were coming inside. Um, but then, of course, the eviction was just a two week long yeah, military like occupation of the police. So they built a fence around Litzerat, uh, cut off support and supplies. They yeah, we're kind of um, making like headlights through the whole village 24 hours a day. They were evicting 24 hours a day. It was, yeah, 
just okay. uh, very stressful on people, of course. And mm-hmm. yeah, of it? course, towards the eviction, it got a little bit more like, you know, people got more uh, prepared for it and like prepared the village, the structures for it, more barricades and very intelligent barricades um, with like protecting trees with uh, traverses and nets in the trees and tripods and things like that. Just everything to slow down this eviction. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you first approached Lutzi, like when you saw it for the first time? Like, how did it feel? Yeah, kind of what I said before that just I was searching for so long to, yeah, find something meaningful to work with. And then I got there and just knew that I was going to stay here. I didn't know I was going to stay for four and a half months, but that's what happened. yeah, and I just, maybe also to come back to the research approach, it was just a very intuitive uh, way of asking questions and trying to find out, okay, how do people relate to this place? How do they describe it? What do they feel here? What do they learn here? And how is it perceived from the outside? Like, yeah, how do... How does media report on this place and what stories are created about it that latently or also very obviously kind of destroy support for this struggle? Yeah, but it took me very long to <laughs> uh, figure that out. What actually, like, what actually is it that I'm finding out? But I think that's part of of it also to just have this, um, yeah, openness of you know listening to what people have to say a little bit also and. I learned so much from being part of the media working group there. Uh, we had a really strong mm. um, press group. There was journalists like every day in Litzarad. So it's very mm. open also for visitors. It was not like closed or anything. People would come by every day. And yeah, especially with journalists, um, the press group was just constantly working on, okay, and there we come a bit to the common sense and Gramsci, you know, working on counter narratives and following up how how are we reported on what stories are told about us. And it's mm-hmm. very like obviously wrong things like that it's a dead place. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. <laughs> or that it's just a symbol for the climate justice movement, which it's not. It's about literally material, like hundreds of millions of coal. And yeah. Yeah, it was not always, it was very, very tough also to have this openness and flexibility because it kind of leaves you in the unknown and in the uncertain for so long. Happy I did it that way. So, from what you said, it seems like the media kind of like diminishes the, the whole struggle in, let's see. And I guess like, it had maybe it had a it's like headline period and then it was just sort of off off the uh books for a bit but would you say that's like that's a correct assessment yeah but yeah that's um i mean those stories are not just coming up at the point of eviction or like in the preparation for the eviction those stories have been told about the 
quotation mark empty villages like for years um to kind of justify that they're taken down um mm -hmm. yeah it's more like a general sentiment or a general like larger stories that are told about these places and i think it's not just like in the end this is not just stories that are told only about Litzava. this is told about you know all or not all but i think there will be um similar stories told about different places and different struggles kind of as far as it fits into the yeah a little bit what we talked about before like the official officially it's empty because there is no official inhabitants but if you go there like people when i would ask visitors about how they perceive Litzerat, how they feel how their experience is mm -hmm. like so many were saying that it's insane to have this contrast between this nothingness on one side and this like just village full of life on the other side and like it's so yeah. colorful it's so people are just so motivated and um energized to you know do something and always building something and <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um, yeah barricades we we had this talk with sorry sorry go ahead no, i was just gonna add that of course these these stories like saying it is empty saying it is a symbol it's very um powerful mm -hmm. because it creates like pictures in people's minds and it creates you know if someone in the other end of germany reads over and over and over again that Lützerat is the empty or the abandoned village that has been you know that some activists are <laughs> living in tree houses and it's just it some makes goddamn hippies <laughs> yeah and that is also like even the more kind of nicer articles maybe about Lützerat. really <laughs> even those kind of put it i mean there were some and there was certainly a development of that mm. up to the eviction as well because journalists actually stayed for a couple of nights and you know took a bit more time not many right. but some i thought you were saying that the nicer articles were calling you hippies okay <laughs> i think that is actually what is um, yeah blatantly yeah in them is that it's still not you know connecting it to the bigger picture of actually mm -hmm. system change and it's still you know going into detail about all these specific teas about let's see about all the yeah the vegan kitchen or the language that's very sen gender sensitive and talking about relations instead of property and all mm -hmm. these things like even if newspapers or if journalists take that into the articles it kind of is still an isolated thing from the rest of society i feel like well that's just that's just my interpretation so far and mm -hmm. yeah it just kind of doesn't connect it to the systemic issue that much yeah i feel like this really brings me back to the episode actually just previous to this one, which I highly recommend you go listen to after uh, you listen to this episode, after you finish this, <laughs> listen to this, uh, with David E. Gilbert, who talks about how barricades, um, barricades and, and kind of protests 
create space and they don't just create space they also they also create possibilities for life for for a vibrant creative energy uh and and for people to create alternatives to things it's like barricades by holding space and by saying no they physically they kind of create that alternative in a way or, or at least give space for that creation so it's that's definitely in practice what Lutzi, I think to me seems seems like um I, I think it's beautiful I think we need so many more of these types of of creative uh examples for people also to to have this like life-changing experience and realize that there is another way it's not yeah. just the kind of capitalist hellscape um that's out here it's there's also this this possibility but i guess until you sometimes until you live something you don't really realize it and i think that's maybe one of the issues with escaping capitalism is that it doesn't allow alternatives to thrive and to show people uh, yes you can you know mm. um, and so yeah i think it's beautiful that you got to experience that even though you know even though Lucy is now in our hearts i would say um i think it's still it's still great uh, it's probably been it'll probably be a, a great kind of help to you and your your perspective i i really just want to come back very quickly and then i kind of want to move on from them not talk about them again but the police um <laughs> um i want to just ask you like did you have did you have a detailed discussions with them or because i know you did some interviews did you manage to talk in person directly to any of the police officers like hey do you know what's happening here like are you aware of what you are protecting as a human being beyond just doing your job um did you have any of these kind of conversations with them were they if you did were they receptive to things um yes i did i had them uh yeah very late at night and <laughs> in yeah probably in a lot of um under a lot of stress and under a lot of uh yeah, you know strain um and sometimes i mean sometimes they were kind of understanding and some actually told us they respect us a lot and but then that's a strange you know, that's a strange it revelation strange. It, is, <laughs> it is and it's some were also just like yeah not just yeah. repeating over and over what the what kind of the media writes which is yeah um yeah but even i think it can be a little bit um at least that's the experience I made is that it can be a little bit um were they just like chopping down the treehouse like I respect you sis I respect you <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck <laughs> um I mean no that those were more the close conversations when they were taking people out of their houses their homes um mm. but I think it was also, a, you know, kind of being the nice cops is also a pacification strategy mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. way they kind of, you know, they say, hey, if you just, I respect you, if you just, you know, come out now, 
you won't get any fines. La di da. Sounds very tempting, especially after if you've been there for, you know, long time and just kind of exhausted. But it is a way to make people go with them and to obey and to, yeah. yeah. I don't want to say give up because it's not giving up, obviously, but it's um, just making it easier for them. So I do... I, re I do respect the individual police people, of course, and I know they're doing their job, and I know that many of them have probably very difficult um, conversations with themselves about that as well. But, uh, yeah, in that case, I think pretending to understand and still, you know, still continue doing what you're doing, there's, there's this very famous uh, or not famous but like a very remarkable maybe uh situation where there's a picture of where you can see this um excavator in the background it was a confrontation between um protesters and the police in i think the third of january or something like that so before while they were building the fence kind of mm -hmm. and um yeah it's just this picture in the background is this huge wheel barrel. What's it called? Um, like the wheel from the, the excavator. And right oh, in front of it, there's a row of police literally protecting the machine from activists. And then it's like this picture says so much about who, whom the institution police actually protects. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if I. I don't know if I would be as kind as you. Um, <laughs> I I feel in these instances, like in many other jobs similar to them, I would just say, just go serve some fucking coffee or go work at a bar or something. Like, there's plenty of those jobs around. You don't have to be a cop and protect yeah. uh, eco ecological... Uh, destruction destructive machines and 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 yeah I, I i don't know i think i'm sure a lot of them have difficult conversations with themselves maybe not all for sure not all of them i'm sure just kind of trick themselves or convince themselves uh otherwise but i just cannot understand i guess personally how one could so actively go out of their way to defend something like this, you know? Like, I can understand passiveness in in the face of these sort of things because, you know, I am myself passive in front of a lot of, like, terrible things. Like, uh, I don't know, just as we all are, like, there's all sorts of shit happening all around the world that we're not actively going up and doing something about it because, you know, we have limited bandwidth and and limited energy and we have financial issues each of us and et cetera et cetera um so of course it's understandable not to be able to like be actively engage in every single thing but to actively fight for something as also as like obviously bad <laughs> as as the coal mine here in Lutzi. like i guess yeah i don't know i i just kind of wonder 
how far you have to to kid yourself to to be able to to do this but you know I, of course there are plenty of people who would take those jobs if those individual policemen were to uh quit i'm sure yeah. but i think that's where media is so interesting to look at it's like mm. yeah people make those choices why do they make and why do they think it is okay and yeah i just yeah back to these stories that are told about let's see all of these stories they create these pictures of what's right and what's wrong and who is the good and who is the bad in this situation i think it's just very interesting to understand why people are continuing to mm, defend the smiling company <laughs> yeah and i think uh, i think when you're like actively involved in the struggle as an agent as a police officer you know it's not like you're just an outsider reading the news who may may or may not be vulnerable to um misinformation or like a mischaracterization of the struggle it's like they have a since they're actually they actually have responsibility and are playing a part there's like a really strong incentive for them to buy into these um false narratives that are favorable to the mining company you know they mm. they, they would seek justification for their actions uh, and it's almost like the worse things they have to do and the more violence they have to commit, the more of it, the stronger the incentive becomes. Um, or it could, it might not even be a case by case basis. It might just be like, oh, I'm part of the police. So we're automatically the good guys as well. Like mm. I, they must, they must think they're, what they're doing is justified. Um, yeah. And I think some of them are also very strongly um, convinced that it is the right thing what you kind of saw how people yeah reacted on the, the big demonstration during the eviction um yeah because no one wants to no one thinks of themselves as the the bad guy mm. yes do you um, oh sorry go ahead jamie sorry um yeah i i don't know if there's like any data on this so we might kind of be just kind of feeling things out here but i wonder if you know of sort of what the general public response is or like is it a polarized issue or like are the public generally you know buying into these narratives or are they you know or is the counter narrative does that have the counter narrative in favor of the protesters you know does that sort of have any sort of ground in the public side i wonder hmm um i actually saw statistics today where i think it was mm. um i don't of course know how representative that is but uh it was saying yeah. yeah it was saying that uh, i think it was around 80 percent of people in germany that actually were in yeah against the eviction or okay, maybe yeah. let it be 70 percent yeah um, and I had many friends come to me afterwards and actually saying that the, yeah, the media work that Litzerat kind of did, um, was super powerful and they just felt so, I mean, yeah, at this big demonstration during the eviction, people came from all over Germany. So it certainly yeah. had an effect and I think it's, I think many people um, 
yeah, got a bit more, um, yeah, supported it more through, or you could say got radicalized probably. It's a good issue, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense for, um, I don't, I'll, I'll just say ordinary citizens <laughs> to be radicalized by an issue like this, because it's like you were saying earlier, like this is like, it's almost such a basic issue it's just people being displaced from their homes you know it's it it's you know mm. unless you you already have sort of like an entrenched mindset on this it's it's quite clear to see how this is a a bad thing and how the government's doing like something really bad here yeah and just connecting this to the yeah to the physical space i think that is very like mm so many people came to visit Lutzi even for three days or maybe a week or something like that um but to actually see okay what is this electricity that i get in my home actually connect or not in my home you know the, the lease goes to the homes but this energy that we produce and use in germany where does it come from what is it what does it mean like what does this a friend of mine um, made the metaphor of it's actually, yeah, it's rape of the earth. If you see this hole, it's like, it's not consensual. It is not reciprocal. It's like, it's just taking and what for? Like, yeah, I think seeing that um, many people just really made a strong connection. Um, yeah, but of course it's very difficult to say, like in numbers, how many people got more uh, supportive of it and how mm. many got like really pissed also because in Germany right now the debate um, around climate activism is so polarized. Um, yeah, with people from yeah last generation, um, people got really mad about them sticking themselves to roads and stuff like that so it's yeah i don't think you can say it in numbers or like quantities who <laughs> if it made a change but for sure it it turned the debate around a bit and yeah and at least at least for the time being although you know the government and the police ha seem to have the advantage in a physical sense um if if we're so if if they those statistics you saw earlier sort of like an accurate representation it shows that they're kind of on the losing side in terms of um controlling the narrative around this and i wonder what that means for the future of the struggle um you know even if even if um the government is ultimately achieves their goals and manages to exploit these resources i i still wonder like you know, this this is still going to have a lasting impact in in terms of um, I guess the public's view of the government and and similar situations like this. Yeah, I think that's also where Bitsy certainly made that point that governments are not acting, and that's why we are. I want. I just want to actually ask you about because so we we've been talking about government. Right. And like Germany's government or governments in very broad terms. I want to like maybe like hone in a little bit more onto that dimension. When we say government, 
or when you say government, sorry, do you mean the regional government? Is there a sort of provincial government? I guess I'm asking who is really in charge of pushing this project through, of making sure that the police is there to, um, in helping set these goals that you mentioned in the beginning of like, you know, the coal mine going ahead because it would apparently uh, shorten the amount of time that we actually bring coal out because that makes any sense. Um, it, who Who is this? Is this national government or, or some sort of sub-government? Um, the negotiations that were made with the, the mining company were yeah, between representatives from the Green Party um, of the regional and the national level. Let's go Greens! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't, I don't know if it makes, if it's so important to distinguish between the levels because overall, you know, even discussions on a national level about energy transition, coal exit, all these things, even those debates and discourses and um, yeah, narratives are kind of paving the way for this decision to say, okay, uh, yeah, this company can continue destroying and raping the earth um, if it buys some offset certificates yeah. Uh, or yeah you know so it's I think it's it's a messy complex that overall probably just works uh, quite simple uh, <laughs> together with the <laughs> company <laughs> yeah. yeah it reminds me in a way my own project where people would would allow a wind turbine field because they were saying, you know, like, oh yeah, but don't worry guys, there's a, this other field over there we're going to protect and and it's going to be home to endangered species and we're going to like take good care of it. Yeah. And then a few years later, another company would come and say, hey, we got an idea. We're going to put a wind turbine field on this site. And but don't worry, we'll choose another site to protect. And it's like one at a time, these so-called protected sites were being taken over by wind farms. And each of them was like selecting the next field on and on and on until actually, well, the one that I was at was the final, final field for birds to potentially have some rest on their journey. Uh, because every single other one was taken now. And it's like, you know, it's it's a kind of, it's like a, a sort of messed up uh, musical chairs. It's like musical chairs mm -hmm. of death, you know? It's, yeah, um, yeah I, I think this sort of stuff, unfortunately, is happening in a lot of ways because of the bureaucracy around everything, right? Around the way that we manage and quantify and parcel land and see it as uh, a mon of monetary like value as well mm. it's you know there's something i mean it's, it's not new for a lot of political ecologists out there listening but i'm sure for anyone who isn't familiar with it there is a, a pretty big understanding i think at least i've seen that 
the the very manner in which we quantify and and qualify land and resources in a way allows it just that very act of doing that allows it to be then traded financialized and just at the end of the day like completely destroyed because we at the beginning allowed it to be quantified and qualified like that um so i think that is something also to consider when we see things that we maybe think are a little bit um harmless yeah sometimes just the first stage of something harmful for sure yeah i think with this whole yeah quantifying and making exchangeable of other forms of life than us or yeah it's also such an arrogance i think to just yeah yeah believe that we could do that and erase all complexity that we don't even understand <laughs> of yeah ecosystems and did the did the government actually come in to like talk to you guys or like i wonder what the the interaction was from the actual officials especially from the greens <laughs> well yeah they um i think in the year last year or the year before that um they actually used Lutzi as a argument to win or yeah to to win during the election the re regional election they said they are Good fighting God. for the yeah um for the for let's say to keep um so one year you go into the polls you go to the urns you select green party of germany <laughs> yeah Good it was literally the same the next day you get absolutely wrecked by green sponsored police literally the same um politician that wow. yeah one year or let it be two years earlier said we are going to make sure that Lutzard is not going to be dug up I'll I'll try and have them on the show I'll I'll uh, send <gasps> me their name after the show and I will immediately send them an email see if we can't get them on here and then you can lurk in the shadows when we interview them. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to halfway pounce. through, halfway through, you just you just enter and say, <laughs> and they just go, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, <laughs> I voted for you. <laughs> no, it's it's kind of fucked up that they did that, and and I do you think they're going to face a backlash of some kind, or not really, or have mm -hmm. they? I don't. I mean. I don't there anyone else follow... like you know like anyone else what do you mean it's you know like anyone else at all sort of on the environmental side of things in, uh, as a candidate i have to be honest with you that i do not follow party politics so much <laughs> which just maybe <laughs> explained well by the situation um yeah i mean they of course get into a lot of scrutiny for uh, this uh, especially from yeah, people who voted them before. But then I don't think it's something new that the Green Party's uh um oh I don't know doing the word um that they kind of let go of the ideals for success in elections. So yeah. I think it's just uh, I can sell it so. out. That's <laughs> what we call it. One eighty one eighteen turn cloak. So why do you think that Lutzi, out of all places, got so much attention? I, that's that's something I've really wondered because there's been so many 
different fights around Europe. And and of course, I guess Lutzi was maybe one that was kind of set up in a way where it already had a, like you said, a long-standing uh, resistance for many, many years. And then also a kind of invigoration maybe at some point of, of young people and then activists and things and defenders. And do you think that like there was something, I guess, uh, do you think it was pure luck or do you think there was like a real sort of formula that allowed it to be so projected in the media? Like, was it the media team, I guess, also, <laughs> maybe? Because not every struggle gets Greta coming and and, <laughs> and our, our dear classmate Jonas uh, taking taking a night bus to, <laughs> to go yeah. lend support. We, Jonas and I got to hang out. That was very cool. Um, oh, really? Oh, that's sick. Yeah. Um, I think it's many things. It's um, yeah, for once, of course, that it's been over two years that there was an autonomous zone and people were self-organizing and learning and yeah, also learning from previous struggles. Of course, it's not really. It's not possible to separate them from each other. Um, I think. Um, then the infrastructure, I think, in Litzy is pretty is pretty important because it's it had already these village structures, so it was very much more accessible to more people than a forest, for example, where you could only live in tree houses or tents. Um, and it freed up a lot of time also and resources to actually mobilize and to invest a lot of time in press work and in organizing <clears throat> demonstrations um, just because not, not everything had to be built ground up, you know. Um, yeah. But then obviously also the very, you know, activeness of the whole conflict. It's just been burning for years um, under the lid kind of with this uh, yeah, last farmer the last official um, inhabitant of Litzy who went into court against the mining company and and all of this um, <clears throat> so it's just been very active already for a long time and then yeah of course this mine attracts media and attracts people and it just reinforces each other to become bigger and um, get more attention um, yeah so it's many things I think. but for sure also the work uh, that people put into this and the dedication some people yeah lived in their treehouse for two years two and a half years and um, really built this alternative uh that we're always speaking about in academia you know we're we're talking so much about how society could be better and how we would have to live and all these concepts of like <laughs> yeah uh, conviviality and reciprocity and we always talk about it but then there's people who actually do it every day and they give up all or they i mean it's not a giving up it's like it's trading, I guess, all these 
things of jobs and career and security in a way maybe also we kind of letting go of that but then you receive something much i think much greater this sense of okay we're actually working on our utopia right now and right here and it doesn't have to be perfect so that we can make it you know it's about what we work for every day um a friend of mine very early in my time in Lutzi, he told me about um, his motivation to come and and he spoke to me about this concept of concrete utopia uh, mm -hmm. from Ernst Bloch uh, a philosopher and yeah which is just basically this um, letting go of this how it could be and how it would be perfect and and such and just seeing okay what can we yeah <laughs> just go for it because <laughs> we can do so much better than than we currently are yeah yeah i totally agree the concrete are one of our best allies here in this kind of struggle like it's so easy to just stay stay in our books and stay in our academic articles and our ted talks and our podcasts and <laughs> and not actually face the music and, and mm -hmm. you know like go and see the actual struggles that are out there especially in our own backyards and that that's something that i don't know if maybe this research project for you kind of helped concretize this but for me it definitely mine definitely showed me that like i don't need to go far you know to to find ecological destruction or struggles for basic human rights and things like this like you know i there's such um an imbalance where a lot of us from the global north are kind of told and taught to go to the global south to less in, in big quotation marks less developed countries uh as they call it to go see the horrors of of colonialism and 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 capitalist expansion but but you, you needn't look no further like than our own backyards i mean it, for me it was a huge shock in a way a wake-up call that like yeah i don't need to go to like mines in you know in mongolia where they're mining like extremely dangerous radioactive substances and washing power washing them with chemicals i can just go to belgium and there's you know death and destruction here just in different ways um and i i don't know i guess for me it, it felt i i wonder if it felt like that for you that that there is something we can do and it does start at home in a lot of ways and it's also easier to start at home because you feel this connection with the people, with the language, with the home, the place. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder, does that, did your experience with this struggle in Germany kind of help you concretize a little bit this feeling of that you can make a concrete utopia nearer to you, that you don't have to go far, far in a way? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't, I think definitely, and I think I wouldn't consider building a concrete utopia somewhere else than <laughs> where I'm rooted in anyways, but also for, yeah, researching whatever it is that we're interested in. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the first decisions I made in this research project was to stay in Germany because I 
just didn't want to, you know, I think there comes a lot of pretension with saying, okay, I'm going into an entirely different context and coming with some theory that is supposed to say anything about this. Um, and I don't even speak the language, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure it works. And I'm, sh I'm sure some people do a great job with this. Uh, but I think in most cases, it just doesn't. And it just, yeah, it's a bit pretentious. Um, well, welcome to the German side of Belgium. You have, yeah, I can give you a pass if you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, yeah, starting in our own backyard, I think is... Yeah, so crucial because, and and that also led me to focus on this whole media thing and kind of the common sense and just because after all, like what what's the point of, you know, studying how we could do if we don't know why people are or why we are so infused with this capitalist values. It's literally mm -hmm. like it's it's everywhere. And, you know, I think it's about time to, yeah, dismantle <laughs> or to, yeah, attack those structures that make us believe that we need more and more stuff and that we need, like, a secure job to be happy and a house and whatnot and a car. <laughs> and that, yeah, uh, activities like mining activities that kind of, you know, are very closely connected to all of this uh, choices are le legitimate. Um, so yeah, it definitely has something to do with starting at home, I think. And I hope that I can contribute something uh, with this project. Yeah. <laughs> I think we'll start moving into the closing stages of, of this discussion because we've been going on for an hour and a half now. I don't I no it's great it's great I'm loving it um I just know to keep them somewhat contained or else people get angry because they see too long of a runtime and they're like why is this show long and then they listen to it and they're like I want more I want more <laughs> um, make up your minds people so no nah, but just but put it on two times speed man yeah, yeah, literally. Um, so we've got maybe a, a couple more questions and then we'll we'll wrap up. But um do you, were the protests and actions I, I don't really know how to qualify them. I guess the, the struggle for Lutzi for you, was it effective? Would you say that it was effective? And I mean that in a very broad sense of the term. Not sure what you mean by broad sense, but I guess I, I don't mean that just specifically like, you know, <clears throat> saved a thing or whatever. I mean, like, do you see it as something that was successful, like that was effective in your view? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, kind of what we what we maybe touched on a bit before also just how many people got yeah politicized and kind of, you know, got this really strong connection of, okay, this is what's politicians say and do this is what this company says and does and this is what's actually happening here on the ground some of germany's most fertile soil fertile soils and like oldest forests and life is just being dug away 
yeah, I think many people had that experience and I think that's where it's very effective. But I don't really like that word. I think it's kind of been used too much to delegitimize or to mm-hmm. kind of downplay also struggles if they're if they're maybe not reaching the the immediate goal, which I think right. um, yeah. is really difficult because they are not separate struggles. They're all in solidarity or that's at least how I see it and understand it is it's like it's connected anti-capitalist struggles and that can be against gentrification that can be against patriarchy that can be against mining and you know it's not one thing for itself but it's it's kind of it's a yeah um so i think that yeah it's super hard to say and i don't know if it um, does much to also determine it because yeah it's a little bit also like you know trying to measure how good was the utopia in Lutzi really you know (laughs) of course it wasn't perfect but you know how can it be if you're constantly confronted with destruction and with yeah yeah, this pain um, yeah, but it's for sure it's uh, interesting to talk about that. Also, maybe one question each, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think she basically answered the one about that the future holds there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the future of Lucy, but yeah, that's pretty much that covered. So, what would you it say? Is the future of Lucy, wild and colorful. <laughs> good, good, and with uh, with impact that goes far beyond the specific struggle in Lutzi as well, in terms of changing minds and eroding the stagnant capitalist uh, hegemonic ideology, hopefully. Um, But what would you say is the sort of, when you you think of your experiences in Lutzi, what would you say is the the sort of biggest takeaway or biggest surprise you had um it could be during your time there or during your research just sort of what is the sort of single thing that's that kind of sticks out the most to you in your time with it that's a hard question there's so much <laughs> we can pause it and then in the yeah. episode you just like bam you just had like immediate answer. <laughs> <laughs> no problem of course it's oh, this yeah. like <laughs> i think it's um just that I kind of I came there and I was super stressing out okay I have to you know I have to fix my research question I have to fix my interview guide I have to make this super clear straightforward know what I'm doing and make something that's useful and otherwise my stay here and my you know the space I'm taking the food I'm eating is not justified I kind of carried that along Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. around with me for a long time also because through the work I was doing on my computer it was less work that I could actually you know contribute um back into Litzy. but I've been the only person that ever made those um or that ever had those expectations on me and I think that is one of the biggest um yeah experiences there is just this 
full-hearted um, appreciation of each other's presence and yeah not having expectations of you know this kind of trade logic that we're so mm-hmm. infused with it's just poof it's just gone because people are here they know why they're here and everyone is doing as much as they can and in the ways that they can and that's fine and if you have yeah if you can't you know contribute with something then you can still be there and be part of the team i think that was maybe that feeling was also resembled a bit in a dream that i had lately uh i think it was three nights ago or something like that i was in Lutzi again and i was just there to have you know to dedicate as much time as possible into Lutzi and to have fun and to not do my master thesis (laughs) (laughs) and then i figured that i had forgotten all my clothes and all my toothbrush and my underwear and everything (laughs) (laughs) and i was like oh no that sucks like now i could actually just be here and i forgot everything and then the second thought actually when i woke up i had a thought and it was like yeah but it's fine like let's see got me covered kind of Mm -hmm. and you can literally come there with empty hands and yeah we'll be welcome and at this point i just want to say that this was my experience and that other people maybe had different experiences at some point and that of course i'm painting a very harmonious picture about every community there is some you know there's some conflicts and conflicts can be resolved and there's there was i think great um, awareness concept around trying to solve conflicts together and prevent them and mm-hmm. ev- all of that is of course another dimension if you're under this constant stress of we're going to be evicted in two months so i think that is really where one also has to separate a little bit between yeah the utopia and the you know the concrete utopia what we can actually do but yeah since you asked me i think that's uh, something i wanted to share and it might be that like despite that pressure and despite that sort of um oppression like you know direct oppression be it through physical force from the police or being displaced from your home it's just i i I wonder if there was a feeling of like pride and almost a sense of like autonomy that is like so rare to like ordinary people. Like you're actually making a stand. You're actually trying to make a change. I I don't know. I feel, I feel like that could be such like an immense sense of pride, despite the sort of immense resistance from the government. It's just like for once actually getting to stand up and and say the government is doing something wrong. Yeah, I think maybe pride is maybe not the word I would use. I think I would call it emancipation. Hmm. And yeah, just a really strong sense of community and yeah shared struggle i guess because people come to this place for different um reasons right and people seek this space 
yeah, out of different personal motivations to to join an anti-capitalist struggle. Some might be more driven by, yeah, <laughs> um, or might be more connected to queer struggles. Um, others are just very much from the local um, perspective and like see uh, land around them being destroyed for decades. Nice way to close it off. If if you would like to partake in the exercise, Ele, is um, it would be great if maybe we could close our eyes <laughs> and you could paint a bit of a picture for us of what Lutzi was like, or maybe think back to, I don't want to get all therapists on you, obviously, but <laughs> <laughs> think back to, you know, one of the more harmonious, warm, kind, gentler moments of your time in Lutzi. And if you could just describe to us what it felt like, what the smells and the sights were like, what the sounds were like, and just a kind of little pocket in time, a little bubble of of goodness of what Lutzi was like. There's There could be many places and many situations I could describe, but in this one, we are in about 12 meters height in an oak and a birch tree. And... We're inside a treehouse, <laughs> a treehouse with an oven, and the oven is on and it's warm. Also, because we've been isolating like three days straight uh, <laughs> and painting a dragon on on the wall that we've been isolating, and it's quite stormy outside. And yeah, there's still some some cracks in the treehouse walls that we missed. And so there's a little bit of wind kind of blowing inside, but it's kind of mm -hmm. a decent temperature. It's it's okay. And also we're, yeah, we're cuddled up, cuddled up in, in blankets and that makes it better. And we have some fairy lights on. Uh, no, actually the electricity was already cut off. So we have candles on. <laughs> Um, <laughs> which makes it even more uh, cozy. One of us is reading The Hobbit to the rest of us, and we're listening to the Hobbit film music on Spotify. Um, so cool. <laughs> and you know, we're braiding hairs and yeah, just um, listening to The Hobbit, and after that. Another person joins in and plays guitar. Um, some of us go to sleep because in the treehouse there's like a, a second floor under the roof, a little niche where you can sleep. And actually it's quite quiet there. It's quite soundproof. So there can be like five or six people on the first floor and then can actually sleep or have a phone call upstairs. But it's quite cold up there. So you don't want to, yeah. <laughs> Peter without the sleeping bag. Yeah, and so we just uh, spend our evening after a long day of running around and building stuff and being in plenaries and discussing how we want to, you know, um, organize and prepare. And um, maybe some of us still have a night shift ahead of them, um, which can be really fun also with bonfires and stuff. 
but yeah, there was many evenings of those. Um, and I'm really grateful for them. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. <laughs> that's such a nice story. Aww. Yeah. That's a yeah. great advice, Gunder. No, I, I'm very happy that you took to it so well and, and really did it justice. Uh, I think Jamie and I both the entire time probably just like wishing that we could be there. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I think I think that is maybe just some some last words. I think that is um something that makes me the most sad about yeah, that Litzy doesn't exist anymore as a physical space. It's just that there's so many people that I know would have loved to be there and would have learned so much and, you know, made so many important connections to people and like friendships of their life, probably, that they can't anymore in this space. But then again, I also know that there will be a new Litzy and a new place where people um yeah. can experience that and maybe they're even part of building it <laughs> maybe so maybe so yeah, yeah. and damn yeah I, I hope i see all of you with the new lutzi if it's like that um definitely we'll keep an eye out and i think yeah one thing that jamie and i i know we've talked about a few times we'd love to do is take rising with the tide on the road a little bit you know and now that we both kind of have somewhat stable jobs um for now <laughs> uh, we can maybe potentially do that so who knows maybe we'll be at the next lutzi you know having these conversations in person doing some filming some pictures and gathering a, a semblance of of what what is and what was yeah. getting it out there spreading spreading the stories yeah letting everyone know what it's like and that they should join until then Ele, thank you so 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 thank so much so much Ele. for coming on the show for sharing your perspectives and your life experience and giving us your time and and yeah thank you for having having struggled in Lutzi and writing about it <laughs> And I'm very much looking forward to reading, uh, to reading your your writing when it comes out for sure. Um, I hope we still have that deal going on where we co-publish our two stories together. Hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I mean, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you know, I'll put your kind of socials in case maybe you'd like some people to be able to reach out to you and, and ask you something or yeah for or, sure or contact you for more interviews who knows um yeah thank you Ale. thank you so thank much you, it's been a pleasure and yeah i loved our conversation um yeah cool. if uh, if it's fine with you i would uh, i have a poem that i would like to share of course Definitely. of course um, and a book recommendation, but then I'm done. <laughs> go, go for it, go for it. Okay, maybe the book recommendation first is, uh, it's called Enforcing Ecocide by um, Alexander Dunlap and Andrea Brock. And I would highly That's one. That's one I know of. 
That rings a bell. <laughs> um, yeah, to just, I think, understand how enforced this destruction is. It's not um, accidental or, you know, badly planned, but it is enforced. And it's just, uh, yeah, uh, selection uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, of chapters that um, bring that really uh, clear. And then I have a poem that kind of um, found me again a week ago or so. It's a poem that was written on the wall, on a wall in Litzi. And I walked past it almost every day. And um, I didn't know the the philosopher before. She's called Masha Kaleko. Uh, she's a German-speaking philosopher who had to leave Germany during the uh, Second World War. And she writes a lot about yeah home, uh, resistance, loss. Um, and yeah, it's a German poem, but poem but the translation I think is okay that I made <laughs> um and I just thought it was it's it was very um it made me feel very secure in where I was and what I was doing although it felt a bit scary sometimes mm-hmm. and it goes like this tear up your plans be wise adhere to wonders Chase away the fears and the fear of fears. It's a very short piece of a larger poem, actually, but yeah. Very nice. Oh, yeah, and the way it found me was on this random um, secondhand uh, flea market in the little town that I live in. Like one hour before it closed, there was two books of her, and I was just like, what? This is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's really great. Yeah, we'll we'll put that in the description of the video as well in case you haven't um, managed to catch it or something. We'll we'll write it in the description to make sure people find it and, and it finds people. Um, are, is there anything that you'd like to shout out before we, we click end on this meeting? I think I shouted out a lot already. <laughs> but I, I mean more like where people ought to go to find information about Lutzi, the the better maybe sources or, oh, yeah. or people who are doing work around things like Lutzerat, but also maybe other, I, I don't know, social media accounts, this sort of stuff. Mm, there's two really good um, articles on, one is on the pollen um, the Political Ecology Network uh, by Ad- Andrea Brock um, written about, let's see, I don't know the title, but if you search for Litzerat, you will find it. And the same goes for The Ecologist. There's some really good articles. Um, yeah, not necessarily academic. It's more like uh, blog articles. So it's uh, mm-hmm. um, nice and crispy. Mm-hmm. Um, then, of course, you can still follow uh, Lutzi lebt on Instagram. We can link that maybe. Um, a lot of the content is actually very English speaking friendly. Um, but then if it's not, pictures also tell a lot. And right now there's a lot of, uh, 
there's still content coming on the Let's See channels, and okay. mostly mostly other struggles kind of taking over the account for a week or so. Um, or let's see, for example, going to um, the um, the Maya train uh, mm -hmm. resistance um, and yeah, supporting the struggles there. So that's very interesting to follow. Um, and there has been a great article uh, about yeah the mining companies corporate corporate social responsibility strategy as a way to pacify resistance uh, an article by the two authors that also wrote the enforcing ecocide book so andrea brock and alexander dinlap um and that you can find by just searching for uh, corporate social responsibility as counterinsurgency um in the rhineland i don't know the exact title but we can also link that That's pretty cool. good stuff. Yeah. And just a, a very cheeky suggestion from me. If uh, you enjoyed this episode and you would like to see uh, kind of connected episodes or, or from people that Ella has just mentioned, you can go and listen to our episode that we did with Andrea Brock. Uh, that was a while back. So it won't talk about Lutzi probably, but uh, related things for sure, like the Humbach coal mine. Uh, or our episode with uh, Alexander Dunlap as well. That's also on there. Um, and uh, Carola Rakete as well. We talked with her about this in addition to the the migrant um, deaths in the Mediterranean. And now very quickly, just want to say very, very big thank you to our Patreons because without them, the show is not possible. Uh, thank you for bankrolling us and for helping us pay for uh, our hosting site and everything. So thank you so much, Nadia, Shadia, Pablo, George. Uh, means so much to us. Thank you. And yeah, we'll have to leave it at that. Ella, thank you so much. See you around. See you at the next Lutzi. Thank you, Ella. Thank you. Bye bye. Er sucht sie hier, er sucht sie dort, er suchte sie an jedem Ort. Was gab er auf? Doch plötzlich dann rief ihn der Verfassungsschutz an. Gärtermassen, wir haben da gesehen, dass sie wohl gern auf Nazi-Aufmärsche gehen. Das ist ja kein Problem.